Quiet on set. Rolling. Action. Action. Hello, everyone. This is Caitlin. Uh, it'll just be me today, and that is because I'm introducing a whole new series that I hope you guys will absolutely love. I have titled it Booked. It is basically where I will be analyzing the books that we read as children or young adults that have been made into movies, and if I feel the franchise was successful, if I feel the books were better, that sort of thing. Um, and this is a segment that I'd love your guys' personal opinions on. I totally would love to debate with you guys um, over on Instagram page. So if you want to respond to anything that I bring up in the episode, definitely DM our Instagram page and, put, and, and cut the podcast on Instagram. I'd love to read all of it. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first book series. So excited for this one. Um, this book series is very near and dear to my heart. It's something that I have been obsessed with for a while. If you know me, you already know that. Um, but the film franchise that we're starting off with is da -da -da, Twilight. So I, I know off the bat, Twilight, when you hear that, you have mixed emotions. Either you absolutely hated it or you absolutely loved it. I very rarely find somebody that's in between unless they simply have never heard about what Twilight is. So for anybody that does not know a single thing about Twilight and that wants to read it, please know that I will be spoiling the entire series. Everything will be talked about. Every inch of those stories will be talked about. So if you have not read any of them, if you have not seen any of the movies and want to, please do so before listening. Um, I really want to do a nice in-depth analysis for you guys. So if you just didn't really care to read it and still want to listen, that's great. And if you're here as an avid reader and watcher of Twilight that I hope you all enjoy. Um, so a little bit of background information on the film itself. We'll do a little short introduction. So Twilight was initially published on October 5th, 2005 by the Little Brown and Company Publishing. And the film franchise was premiered between 2008 and 2012 with the books being released a few years earlier than that from, like I said, 2005 all the way to 2008. Um, the franchise itself has grossed over $400 million and sold over 100 million copies, which has been translated into 37 different languages. It's actually been credited as one of the highest grossing franchises in cinema history, earning $3.3 billion worldwide across all the movies combined. Um, we should really talk about the author, Stephanie Meyer. Uh, she's currently 48 years old, but was 32 when the first book came out. It initially actually started out as a dream. She's mentioned this in multiple interviews. A dream in which, quote, a vampire boy and a human girl are in a meadow having a conversation. This dream in particular actually went on to become chapter 13 of the very first Twilight book. Um, and the initial transcript was rejected numerous times. I'm sure some of you are not surprised by that. But it was. Um, and she stated in an interview that she got nine rejections, five no answers, and one I'd like to read more. Um, as you can tell by her age, this is a book that she wrote midlife. You know, this wasn't something that she'd been writing since high school. She really wrote it out, out of a dream and wanted to know where these characters were going. Um, up until this point, I believe she had not written anything. So this was sort of like her first venture into publishing, um, which is really fantastic. Great for her. I'm so happy that it paid off really well. Um, my opinion, I think the books are pretty good. Are they works of art? 
we can debate on that. Um, a fun fact about the books themselves is that My Chemical Romance helped inspire and give her inspiration for the series itself. Uh, it's been said that the song Famous Last Words is Jacob's song. And when asked her fans, she was able to like ask her fans who she wanted, who they wanted to be in the movies because she was talking to them a lot on online forums and that sort of thing. And apparently the fourth most requested person to play Edward Cullen himself was the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, Gerard Way. Obviously he turned this down. I don't think he would have ever done that. Um, but it's just interesting the things that she took into account, which very much fits the early 2000s and my chemical romance was hugely popular at the time. So Twilight also sold faster than the Harry Potter books and the audience in the theaters was supposedly 80% female. This film series helped prove that a film that is centered around the female audience could still gain millions of dollars at the box office, even with an almost complete lack of male viewership. Personally, I do not know many males that choose to watch this movie. They're more forced to watch this movie. So it's still amazing that the girls of the world were able to make it such a famous franchise despite all of that. So for some numbers and statistical analysis of these films, the first Twilight movie had a budget of only $37 million, but made $407.1 million at the box office, both worldwide and domestically. The budget is actually pretty small um, compared to a lot of other movies that we see today. They're in the hundred millions. Um, so I'm sure they were surprised. I remember probably seeing videos where Kristen and um, Robert were talking about kind of, they thought they were just setting up for an indie film. They didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And then it became hugely popular. And all of a sudden they had this amazing franchise um, that they now had to complete. Um, the second movie, New Moon, had a budget of 50 million but made $709.8 million worldwide and domestically. So they didn't really raise their budget that much, but they made significantly more just by reaching out to fans and getting the viewership that they needed. The third movie, Eclipse, had a budget of $68 million and made $698.4 million. The fourth and fifth movies, which was the split of the fourth book, Breaking Dawn, so there's Breaking Dawn Part 1 and Part 2, they each had budgets of $127 million and $136 million which is more what we see in blockbusters. Um, but both of those made $712 million for part one and $829 million for part two. Part two, obviously, is the film that made the most money, also the conclusion, so it makes a lot of sense why people want to go see it. So an article written by Sarah Klein that was posted for the University of Pittsburgh's Forbes and Fifth said it best. The business comes down to who is in the film, in which actors will make the fans come back to see more, regardless of the quality, making an investment in the fans rather than the film itself. I think this is so true because so many people have stated that the films aren't good. <laughs> we can debate if, if that's true or not, but even I can agree the films could be a little bit better. There's always something wrong with every film that we watch, but these in particular, very widely scorned. Um, so clearly... It wasn't the the movies or the acting or the quality of the film that made people go see it. It was the fan culture themselves. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is sort of, I guess, the cultural impact that Twilight had on all of us. So I didn't read Twilight until 2014 when I asked to borrow the books from my friend. who. So I came into Twilight the fandom well after the movies had already come out. Uh, the Twilight saga helped bring about entire, quote-unquote, cult fan culture filled with what we all know 
as fan fiction. So Daniel Banks, who is the author of Begin and Begin, a Love Ozia anthology, said that the Twilight fanfiction community embraced and encouraged her to the extent of which she was able to gain the confidence needed in order to start writing her own books. So clearly people really care about fanfiction and have really been embraced by this entire community. The fanfiction surge brought about an extremely controversial pull to publish system. This system had fans write stories of their choosing, let's say, for example, stories about Edward and Bella, to be copyrighted and published just as long as they changed the names and details that were specifically copyrighted by Meyer herself. Fanfic writers were able to turn their works into novels and create bestsellers themselves. The best known example of this is Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm not going to explain what it is because it's bad, but... Fifty Shades of Grey is one of the most well-known examples of this, and it was originally a Bella slash Edward fanfiction titled Master of the Universe. (laughs) The original story, uh, Twilight, was distinctly marketed to a teen girl audience, obviously seen as the main protagonist is, you know, a 17-year-old junior in high school. Everyone has their own opinions on what they feel should have happened in the book. That's obvious. And not everyone who reads Twilight is also a 17-year-old vampire-obsessed teenager. That's also true. A whole new adult erotica era actually came about. Um, as you can see, if you ever read a single piece of fan fiction, it can be pretty disgusting, the things that people write about. Um, the women who read Twilight in their youth have grown up. The legacy they've left behind the internet has been both incredibly shamed and incredibly praised. You can have your own opinion on the fan fiction that you can see out there, but you can't deny that the cult-like fan base these fan fiction writers have helped create ultimately really helped the Twilight franchise become such a blockbuster hit. If it weren't for all of that, people would not want to come back and see more. Um, Twilight was not only hugely popular on the internet in the fan fiction sense, there were also forums and Tumblr threads and blogs dedicated to the Team Edward versus Team Jacob phenomena, which I will touch on in a later episode. Famous quotes and illustrations and stills from the movies were posted absolutely everywhere, which coincidentally also coincided with the creation of famous websites, such as MySpace, which was established in 2003, Tumblr, which was established in 2007, and Facebook, which was established in 2004. Twilight came out at pretty much just the right time to be one of the first internet sensations that we have never really seen before. Uh, like I said before, the fan base is largely and was largely female. So seeing such a wide range of success, both online and offline, really gave marketers and ad agencies new platforms to promote the films as they came out. For example, when the trailer for New Moon was released, it went absolutely viral in a more early 2000s sense, of course. Um, and millions of teen and adults alike could not stop talking about it online. Television stations actually started having Twilight segments. The most well-known example of this is MTV, which created the segment Twilight Tuesdays back in 2008, which included content every single Tuesday until the very first film's release. In order to reach out to more teens, Twilight merchandise was also sold, most notably at Hot Topic and other indie stores like Hot Topic, um, which obviously pays homage to how Stephanie Meyer was distinctly uh, inspired by indie artists as well as, you know, My Chemical Romance. Um, so the real question that I'm sure so many people still ask themselves to this day is why is Twilight so popular? Which is an incredibly valid question to ask. No one is saying Twilight should have won an Oscar, but you cannot deny that the books and the movies gained a level of popularity that was once only reserved for Harry Potter and Star Wars. And obviously, I don't even think the Harry Potter movies even finished, um, being released up until that point, yet Twilight was still 
pulling in very large numbers for the time, for sure. As I stated before, Twilight is both obviously widely loved and widely hated. A lot of the hatred is speculated to be because the book is undoubtedly for teen girls. So I know I can't speak about my own experience. I know I can speak from my own experience personally. I wasn't allowed to watch Twilight when it first came out because I was only seven in 2008. At the time of my life, I was much more interested in Harry Potter. So a romance movie wasn't something I really wanted to be involved in. My Girl Scout troop went to go see it and I just sort of hung back. I didn't really knew, know what I was missing because again, I was seven. Um, in my opinion, as I started getting older and people started being obsessed with Twilight, I was just, oh, that's just for girly girls to like. That was just for the girls that were boy crazy, the girls who really I wasn't really that, like, friends with. I, I was the friend, I was in the friend group that was obsessed with iCarly like, and Victorious. That was my thing. Um, I just knew that I wanted to shun myself from Twilight, really, because in that way I was being more unique, and to put it in our common day terms, I was not being that girl. Um, if anyone asked me why I didn't like Twilight, I always said it was because they ruined the last movie, even though really I was just regurgitating what all the other girls who actually watched the Twilight films have said. Of course, little did I know, I would become absolutely hooked on Twilight back on that fateful day when I actually saw the third movie Eclipse playing on TV in 2014. Um, crazy. I had no idea that I would love it, but I did. <laughs> A YouTuber by the name of Lindsay Ellis actually posted an apology video back in 2018 talking about how as she grew older, she realized Twilight really wasn't that bad in comparison to other pop culture hits at the time. She compared film series that didn't receive nearly as much criticism. Fast and Furious is a good example as movies are still coming out, but are these films really great? I beg to differ and say that I think the Fast and Furious series is not my favorite and kind of boring. Um, anyways, Ellis later stated, we, and by we, I mean our culture, we kind of hate teenage girls. I feel like she's 100% correct about that. More often than not in my life, I have found not only myself, but other girls shamed for liking something that is considered for girls and also being hated for liking something that is considered for boys. For example, liking pink or purses versus liking black or sneakers, you're going to get hated for both pretty much. Um, I don't think anyone really has gotten a break to just sort of like what they want to like without someone claiming they're trying too hard or being too girly as if being too girly whilst being a girl is some sort of cardinal sin. <laughs> for all the girls that grew up with this series, they have come away holding this series close to their hearts. Bella was not a superhero. She was not the most dropped-in gorgeous girl at school, and she wasn't preppy or rich. Bella is honestly pretty average, minus, you know, the abnormal clumsiness that reminds me of how people write on Wattpad their main character. Anyways, Bella has insecurities and weaknesses. She's a people pleaser and stuck in a love triangle with her best friend, which can honestly happen to anyone. I think there is something to be said to have a main character who was so average that almost every teenage girl could relate to her in some aspect. Bella wasn't anything but herself, and yet a 100-year-old vampire and a teenage werewolf were willing to throw the whole world away for her. I don't know about anyone else, but I ate this content right up. <laughs> Critics have often said that Bella lacks a complete lack of personality, which I can see where they are coming from, but her occasional blandness, I feel, makes it easier for me to relate to her. It's refreshing to have a main character that isn't a well-trained assassin or uniquely skilled in any way, shape, or form. I enjoy having a character that doesn't need to be anything but herself. So I feel like we can't talk about Twilight, though, without discussing all of its numerous controversies and criticism. 
I'll be the first to say that this book contains red flags that you really shouldn't ignore. It will be forever criticized for its plot structure and character development and not to mention Edward and Bella's quote toxic relationship, but we'll see if this claim is true in the next episode actually. So as we all know, Bella is human amongst a world of vampires and werewolves. Bella has to resort to a series of negotiations to get what she wants. It seems her entire outlook on her relationship with Edward is life or death. It reminds me a lot of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, where they're willing to die to be with each other. It can be intense while reading it, honestly, especially knowing that Bella is 17 to 18 years old throughout the books. And in that time span, she becomes a vampire, has a child, gets married, and may or may not go to college. This, that is like so much to go through as a young adult. And that, that's coming from me who expected that I would also marry a high school sweetheart. And now I'm almost 21 with no children and no ring. And yet I couldn't be more grateful that I got time to grow up before I experienced all of what she experienced in the span of two years. So another thing to mention is that Stephanie Meyer is Mormon. And to some effect, people have pointed out as to how this could have affected the plot significantly. So one of the smaller subplots that we see in the book is how Bella wants to have sex with Edward, but he is waiting for marriage. And also states specifically he doesn't want to physically harm her as, you know, he is a vampire. Edward and Bella come to the agreement that he will have sex with her only if she marries him, which in hindsight is pretty bizarre to think about because I know Bella truly loves him. We get that. We understand. We're reading from her perspective. We know. But she stated she doesn't want to get married. She has all these negative connotations to marriage, yet she's able to be convinced into it. It's interesting to ponder if Bella truly only agreed to the marriage to get what she wants out of it. But I guess it's up to personal opinion. Bella also gets pregnant from the first time she has sex, which is something that even I was convinced would happen, and is often used as a way to convince young people to refrain from sex entirely. And this obviously can actually happen to some people, but it's interesting to wonder if Maya's religion actually prompted her to include that as a plot point or not. Bella and Emma's relationship is very creepy. I don't even feel like I have to mention that. I think like, we all know. For starters, he is 87 years older than her, even, even though he's immortalized as a 17-year-old. He stalks her, watches her as she sleeps, and has told her numerous times how much he wants to drink her blood, aka kill her. Romantic, right? I take the criticisms of Ever with a grain of salt, though, because I feel like after having read Midnight Sun, I can understand what he did and why he did it even if I would not want my current boyfriend to do any of the things that he did. And obviously this is speaking to the fact that he is a vampire. If a normal human boy were to do any of this, none of it is justified at all. None of it should be justified for him, but I can at least understand. So obviously with a relationship like this, many adults or, or even parents were rightfully concerned for the teenage girls or preteens who were reading all of this. This is not an accurate depiction of a high school romance. Just gotta say that now. The story is often criticized for not being more of a role model story. I really liked that the, one of the articles that I read where that it said, pop culture doesn't need to be instructive to be good. So I can see where there can be a conversation how these books don't follow a more feminist ideal or a female's or femi uh, female sexuality. The power dynamic between a human and a vampire makes it so that Bella is labeled as the innocent damsel in distress fragile type. And Edward, in contrast, is the strong, powerful knight in shining armor type. You really have to keep in mind that we as a society are constantly growing and maturing. These books were published in the early 2000s, and society is at a much different place than it was 20 years ago. We have a right to criticize the negative connotations Bella brings about, but I really think you can't forget about the girls who really enjoyed her, not as a role model, but as a continuation of themselves. 
Many women who have read these books know they want to be a damsel in distress. They fantasize about having knight in shining armor coming to rescue them. And I don't really think that's a bad thing. It's just a book. Please just let me, like, enjoy that without sort of worrying if my feminism, internal feminism is going to be damaged at all. Um, personally, I don't think it made me, at the time when I was reading these, 13 years old, I don't think it made me think that a man is stronger or better than me. It just, I made it through my Twilight Obsession relatively unscathed. So I think I'll be okay as I continue living my life. Um, Stephanie Meyer actually published a book responding to the criticisms that people brought up about this. Uh, I'm going to read the expert that she wrote in the author's note section of Life and Death. So she goes on to say, you know, Bella has gotten a lot of censure for being rescued on multiple occasions. People have complained about her being a typical damsel in distress, a normal human being surrounded on all sides by people who are basically superheroes and supervillains. She's also been criticized for being too consumed with her love interest, as if that's somehow just a girl thing. But I've always maintained that it would have made no difference if the human were male and the vampire were female. It's still the same story. Gender and species aside, Twilight has always been a story about the magic and obsession and frenzy of first love. There isn't much difference at all between a female human in love with a male vampire and a male human in love with a female vampire. So the final controversy that I really do want to touch upon is issues around race. So this is something that I didn't even realize or even acknowledge um, of this series until I was actually creating this episode. Um, it is a fact in the storyline that the Cullen clan is exceptionally rich. Like, so rich, you wonder where they got all that money from. It's never specifically stated how exactly they got that wealth, but it is implied in Midnight Sun that there was some shady dealings that helped them gain success in keeping it, such as using Alice's visions of the future to uh, help themselves in times of possible financial distress. The entire Cullen clan is white. The family's ivory skin complexion is complemented heavily, especially combined with their light eyes and sometimes ginger hair. Bella is also white, being described as having the most translucent pale skin, almost kind of reminding me of Snow White. The Cullen family as a whole is pretty much described as the pinnacle of beauty. I was under the impression this was just because they were vampires, but it seems that it, under a different view, it can also be taken just because they're white, they were deemed more beautiful. But it really depends on how you choose to analyze the text. I think there's really great arguments for both. I'm not going to go too into detail on some of those arguments now. So Meyer published an official illustrated guide to Twilight a few years ago that touches on why vampires are so pale. She describes vampires as such, that the vampire venom eliminates all of the melanin from the body, regardless what the ethnicity the person was originally, and giving them each a pale complexion. The process is included in a larger, so, quote, purification of the body, which just sounds very wrong. I, it makes me so uncomfortable. I really do not know what Meyer was really trying to say with that, but the way that it is worded makes it sound very wrong. It just does not sound okay. It sounds as, as if she's saying that vampires can only just be white at that point, which is very questionable. Um, I did see one person in some of the articles that I was reading claiming that Meyer did not, specifically did not want people of color cast in the movies, but I cannot confirm or deny this claim, so take that as you will. And so in comparison with the vampires, there's also the Kilgat tribe, which is an actual tribe based in La Pouche, Washington, who are the werewolves of the movie. 
Some have criticized the characters' views of the werewolves, saying they are dangerous, uncontrollable, violent. In a fictional monstrous sense, I can totally understand why werewolves would be presented as such. But when you are using the name of a real tribe of people, it comes across as potentially insulting. Um, so as I go into this last section, I feel like this is as good a time as ever to discuss how Twilight affected the towns it was set in. Like I said, La Push, as well as Forks, Washington. Personally, if I were to write a, a novel or story, I would not set it in a real-life location because I'd be afraid of potentially insulting the local population or even interrupting their life if people were to visit the town to sort of live out the book or that sort of thing. This is pretty much exactly what happened with Forks, Washington. So Forks in general has a population of around 3,900 people, and La Push has over 400 residents on the reservation. Before Twilight, Forks was just seen as just another stop on a journey to the National Parks of the Beaches. The majority town drama back in 2005 was between loggers and environmentalists. This all stems back to the 1870s when white settlers were able to move into the area, by shady means, after the Kulet tribe signed away, unknowingly, a large chunk of land. The main debate was environmentalists wanted to, to protect the natural trees from getting chopped down by the logging industry as they had destroyed a lot of land by obviously the 1990s of course so by 1990 lawyers for the environmentalists actually were able to state that the forests along the northwest needed to be protected in order to protect the endangered spotted spotted owl from extinction logging was substantially hurt by this move which resulted in the unemployment rate reaching approximately 19 percent this was the town's key industry and the fallout from the collapse was still felt once the books came out once the first came, book came out, however, a new wave of tourists started appearing in Forks. According to estimates, by 2010, Forks was being visited by 70,000 people a year. In order to compensate the influx of visitors, the townspeople saw an opportunity to create novelty tourist attractions. The official Forks Visitor Center created a twilight map that helped to direct tourists around the town to spots that were depicted both in the books and in the movies, such as Bella's house, Edward's house, Forks High School, the hospital, etc. A resort just outside of the town also created the infamous Treaty Line sign, which you can see in a lot of uh, pictures of people who have gone to Forks. Uh, this is used in the books to designate what land belonged to the werewolves and what land belonged to the vampires. In the books, obviously, there was not an official sign, but there was their own Treaty Line that they knew mapped out in their head. The town also hosts the annual Forever Twilight Festival, where they most notably have hired cosplayers to act out beloved characters, such as, you know, Bella, Edward, Jacob, Alice, etc., etc. The festival is actually still going on. In fact, if you want to go, I've actually included the link in the description of this podcast. This is being held from September 8th through the 11th of this year, celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the release of Breaking Dawn Part 2. I personally will not be attending, but, but if you are, I hope you have a blast. The environmentalists I mentioned earlier actually had a marketing campaign targeted at Twilight fans. Back in 2012, the Nature Conservancy in Washington created a campaign wanting help protecting the forest, claiming the woods as a vampire refuge, quote-unquote. It's worth noting that this marketing strategy ploy was not very successful at the end. Um, as for La Push, they also received an influx of visitors. If you do plan on visiting, I recommend going over onto the tribe's official website to look over their media policies. Um, as mentioned before, the Kilowatt leaders back in 1856 unknowingly signed away land, and once they were made aware, there was a border dispute. 
The Phantom of Twilight actually really backed up the tribe's cause, which resulted in 2012 Congress settling the dispute by giving back almost 800 acres of land, which was from what was now known as the Olympic National Park. PBS actually created a documentary not too long after the settlement where a tribal member by the name of Anne Penn Charles stated that the attention from Twilight fame actually helped them a great deal when pushing Congress and petitioning Congress to get their land back, which I think is absolutely amazing. I'm sure residents of both Forks and La Push have a multitude of opinions over the fact that their home is now the subject of a teenage supernatural romance. I wouldn't be surprised if some people have gotten tired of hearing about Bella, Edward, and Jacob all day long. I know I would be. The constant influx of visitors, however, has actually really helped the town in ways that they weren't expecting. Fans didn't just help the town by buying merchandise from local shops or staying in local hotels. Fans have also actually made numerous donations, both monetary and physical. Physical donations such as diapers, baby clothes, and school supplies as well. I'm sure we all know that Forks and the Push in Twilight is not fraught with romance and adventure, but it really is amazing seeing how much the Twilight fandom has wanted to help those directly affected by the books they hold so dear. I definitely think you really should visit Forks and the Push if you can, if you do love the books as much as I do. I know I want to eventually someday. Um, there's just so much interesting history that you can find there. History that does not include werewolves. Unfortunately, for anyone who's upset about that, um, they, you can go on to uh, kilowattnation.org where they actually have posted their tribal histories because um, they're able to document their history all the way back to the Ice Age. So they have a well-known history. They know who they are. They know what they, what, how they've lived in that land for centuries. So it's very interesting. Um, they also have their own resorts and shops as well if you want to support them that way as well. Um, you can also stay in Forks as well, like I said, shopping, seeing their, their resorts as well. I'm happy that even though these towns were not exactly asked for permission by Stephanie to be involved in this, that they were still able to support their livelihoods through Twilight's legacy. I'm really happy about that. So that is it for episode one of our Twilight series. I hope you all have really enjoyed this episode. I had so much fun making it. Uh, please, like I said at the beginning, please let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your thoughts about everything that I just said. I'd love to debate more about if Twilight is good or bad. Our next two episodes are gonna be coming out soon. I'm gonna be posting these uh, book series every other Friday, so keep an eye out for that. My next episode, I'm gonna be doing all about Team Edward versus Team Jacob. Who was the better boyfriend? Who should have Bella ended up with? And briefly touching on the fact that Jacob imprinted on a baby. So I hope you're all excited for that. I have so many thoughts and opinions I want to share with you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all of you. Please follow and cut the podcast. And you can also follow me personally at katejohnson622 on Instagram. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Uh, bye.